Chapter One, Part Two of The Stones of Venice, Volume Three. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Alan Wayman. The Stones of Venice, Volume Three by John Ruskin. Chapter One, Early Renaissance, Part Two the date at which this corrupt form of gothic first prevailed over the early simplicity of the venetian types can be determined in an instant on the steps of the choir of the church of st john and paul on our left hand as we enter is the tomb of the doge marco cornaro who died in thirteen sixty seven it is rich and fully developed gothic with crockets and finials but not yet attaining any extravagant development opposite to it is that of the doge andrea morosini who died in thirteen eighty two its gothic is voluptuous and overwrought the crockets are bold and florid and the enormous finial represents a statue of st michael there is no excuse for the antiquaries who having this tomb before them could have attributed the severe architecture of the ducal palace to a later date for every one of the renaissance errors is here in complete development though not so grossly as entirely to destroy the loveliness of the gothic forms in the porta della carta fourteen twenty three the vice reaches its climax against this degraded gothic then came up the renaissance armies and their first assault was in the requirement of universal perfection for the first time since the destruction of rome the world had seen in the work of the greatest artists of the fifteenth century in the painting of Ghirlandaio, Masaccio, Francia, Perugino, Pinturicchio, and Bellini, in the sculpture of Mino da Fiesole, of Ghiberti, and Verrocchio, a perfection of execution and fullness of knowledge, which cast all previous art into the shade, and which, being in the work of those men united with all that was great in that of former days, did indeed justify the utmost enthusiasm with which their efforts were or could be regarded but when this perfection had once been exhibited in anything it was required in everything the world could no longer be satisfied with less exquisite execution or less disciplined knowledge the first thing that it demanded in all work was that it should be done in a consummate and learned way and men altogether forgot that it was possible to consummate what was contemptible and to know what was useless imperatively requiring dexterity of touch they gradually forgot to look for tenderness of feeling imperatively requiring accuracy of knowledge they gradually forgot to ask for originality of thought the thought and the feeling which they despised departed from them and they were left to felicitate themselves on their small science and their neat fingering this is the history of the first attack of the renaissance upon the gothic schools and of its rapid results more fatal and immediate in architecture than in any other art because there the demand for perfection was less reasonable and less consistent with the capabilities of the workman being utterly opposed to that rudeness or savageness on which as we saw above the nobility of the elder schools in great part depends but inasmuch as the innovations were founded on some of the most beautiful examples of art and headed by some of the greatest men that the world ever saw 
and as the gothic with which they interfered was corrupt and valueless the first appearance of the renaissance feeling had the appearance of a healthy movement a new energy replaced whatever weariness or dullness had affected the gothic mind an exquisite taste and refinement aided by extended knowledge furnished the first models of the new school and over the whole of italy a style arose generally now known as cinquecento which in sculpture and painting as i just stated produced the noblest masters which the world ever saw headed by michelangelo raphael and leonardo but which failed of doing the same in architecture because as we have seen above perfection is therein not possible and failed more totally than it would otherwise have done because the classical enthusiasm had destroyed the best types of architectural form for observe here very carefully the renaissance principle as it consisted in a demand for universal perfection is quite distinct from the renaissance principle as it consists in a demand for classical and roman forms of perfection and if i had space to follow out the subject as i should desire i would first endeavour to ascertain what might have been the course of the art of europe if no manuscripts of classical authors had been recovered and no remains of classical architecture left in the fifteenth century so that the executive perfection to which the efforts of all great men had tended for five hundred years and which now at last was reached might have been allowed to develop itself in its own natural and proper form in connection with the architectural structure of earlier schools this refinement and perfection had indeed its own perils and the history of later italy as she sank into pleasure and thence into corruption would probably have been the same whether she had ever learned again to write pure latin or not still the inquiry into the probable cause of the enervation which might naturally have followed the highest exertion of her energies is a totally distinct one from that into the particular form given to this enervation by her classical learning and it is matter of considerable regret to me that i cannot treat these two subjects separately i must be content with marking them for separation in the mind of the reader the effect then of the sudden enthusiasm for classical literature which gained strength during every hour of the fifteenth century was as far as respected architecture to do away with the entire system of gothic science the pointed arch the shadowy vault the clustered shaft the heaven-pointing spire were all swept away and no structure was any longer permitted but that of the plain cross-beam from pillar to pillar over the round arch with square or circular shafts and a low-gabled roof and pediment two elements of noble form which had fortunately existed in rome were however for that reason still permitted the cupola and internally the wagon vault these changes in form were all of them unfortunate and it is almost impossible to do justice to the occasionally exquisite ornamentation of the fifteenth century on account of its being placed upon edifices of the cold and meagre roman outline there is as far as i know only one gothic building in europe the duomo of florence in which though the ornament be of a much earlier school it is yet so exquisitely finished as to enable us to imagine what might have been the effect of the perfect workmanship of the renaissance coming out of the hands of men like verrocchio and ghiberti had it been employed on the magnificent framework of gothic structure 
this is the question which as i shall note in the concluding chapter we ought to set ourselves practically to solve in modern times the changes effected in form however were the least part of the evil principles of the renaissance as i have just said its main mistake in its early stages was the unwholesome demand for perfection at any cost i hope enough has been advanced in the chapter on the nature of gothic to show the reader that perfection is not to be had from the general workman but at the cost of everything of his whole life thought and energy and renaissance europe thought this a small price to pay for manipulative perfection men like ferrocchio and ghiberti were not to be had every day nor in every place and to require from the common workman execution or knowledge like theirs was to require him to become their copyist their strength was great enough to enable them to join science with invention method with emotion finish with fire but in them the invention and the fire were first while europe saw in them only the method and the finish this was new to the minds of men and they pursued it to the neglect of everything else this they cried we must have in all our work henceforward and they were obeyed the lower workman secured method and finish and lost in exchange for them his soul now therefore do not let me be misunderstood when i speak generally of the evil spirit of the renaissance the reader may look through all i have written from first to last and he will not find one word but of the most profound reverence for those mighty men who could wear the renaissance armour of proof and yet not feel it encumber their living limbs leonardo and michelangelo ghirlandaio and masaccio titian and tintoret but i speak of the renaissance as an evil time because when it saw those men go burning forth into the battle it mistook their armour for their strength and forthwith encumbered with the painful panoply every stripling who ought to have gone forth only with his own choice of three smooth stones out of the brook this then the reader must always keep in mind when he is examining for himself any examples of cinquecento work when it has been done by a truly great man whose life and strength could not be oppressed and who turned to good account the whole science of his day nothing is more exquisite i do not believe for instance that there is a more glorious work of sculpture existing in the world than that equestrian statue of bartolomeo colleone by ferrocchio of which i hope before these pages are printed there will be a cast in england but when the cinquecento work has been done by those meaner men who in the gothic times though in a rough way would yet have found some means of speaking out what was in their hearts it is utterly inanimate a base and helpless copy of more accomplished models or if not this a mere accumulation of technical skill in gaining which the workman had surrendered all other powers that were in him there is therefore of course an infinite gradation in the art of the period from the sistine chapel down to modern upholstery but for the most part since in architecture the workman must be of an inferior order it will be found that this cinquecento painting and higher religious sculpture is noble while the cinquecento architecture with its subordinate sculpture is universally bad 
sometimes however assuming forms in which the consummate refinement almost atones for the loss of force this is especially the case with that second branch of the renaissance which as above noticed was engrafted at venice on the byzantine types so soon as classical enthusiasm required the banishment of gothic forms it was natural that the venetian mind should turn back with affection to the byzantine models in which the round arches and simple shafts necessitated by recent law were presented under a form consecrated by the usage of their ancestors and accordingly the first distinct school of architecture which arose under the new dynasty was one in which the method of inlaying marble and the general forms of shaft and arch were adopted from the buildings of the twelfth century and applied with the utmost possible refinements of modern skill both at verona and venice the resulting architecture is exceedingly beautiful at verona it is indeed less byzantine but possesses a character of richness and tenderness almost peculiar to that city at venice it is more severe but yet adorned with sculpture which for sharpness of touch and delicacy of minute form cannot be rivalled and rendered especially brilliant and beautiful by the introduction of those inlaid circles of coloured marble serpentine and porphyry by which philippe de comines was so much struck on his first entrance into the city the two most refined buildings in this style in venice are the small church of the miracoli and the scuola di san marco beside the church of st john and st paul the noblest is the rear facade of the ducal palace the casa dario and casa manzoni on the grand canal are exquisite examples of the school as applied to domestic architecture and in the reach of the canal between the casa foscari and the rialto there are several palaces of which the casa contarini called delle figure is the principal belonging to the same group though somewhat later and remarkable for the association of the byzantine principles of colour with the severest lines of the roman pediment gradually superseding the round arch the precision of chiselling and delicacy of proportion in the ornament and general lines of these palaces cannot be too highly praised and i believe that the traveller in venice in general gives them rather too little attention than too much but while i would ask him to stay his gondola beside each of them long enough to examine their every line i must also warn him to observe most carefully the peculiar feebleness and want of soul in the conception of their ornament which mark them as belonging to a period of decline as well as the absurd mode of introduction of their pieces of coloured marble these instead of being simply and naturally inserted in the masonry are placed in small circular or oblong frames of sculpture like mirrors or pictures and are represented as suspended by ribbons against the wall a pair of wings being generally fastened on to the circular tablets as if to relieve the ribbons and knots from their weight and the whole series tied under the chin of a little cherub at the top who is nailed against the facade like a hawk on a barn door but chiefly let him notice in the casa contarini delle figure one most strange incident seeming to have been permitted like the choice of the subjects at the three angles of the ducal palace in order to teach us by a single lesson the true nature of the style in which it occurs in the intervals of the windows of the first story certain shields and torches are attached in the form of trophies to the stems of two trees whose boughs have been cut off and only one or two of their faded leaves left scarcely observable but delicately sculptured here and there beneath the insertions of the severed boughs 
it is as if the workman had intended to leave us an image of the expiring naturalism of the gothic school i had not seen this sculpture when i wrote the passage referring to its period in the first volume of this work chapter twenty section thirty one autumn came the leaves were shed and the eye was directed to the extremities of the delicate branches the renaissance frosts came and all perished and the hues of this autumn of the early renaissance are the last which appear in architecture the winter which succeeded was colourless as it was cold and although the venetian painters struggled long against its influence the numbness of the architecture prevailed over them at last and the exteriors of all the latter palaces were built only in barren stone as at this point of our inquiry therefore we must bid farewell to colour i have reserved for this place the continuation of the history of chromatic decoration from the byzantine period when we left it in the fifth chapter of the second volume down to its final close it was above stated that the principal difference in general form and treatment between the byzantine and gothic palaces was the contraction of the marble facing into the narrow spaces between the windows leaving large fields of brick wall perfectly bare the reason for this appears to have been that the gothic builders were no longer satisfied with the faint and delicate hues of the veined marble they wished for some more forcible and piquant mode of decoration corresponding more completely with the gradually advancing splendour of chivalric costume and heraldic device what i have said above of the simple habits of life of the thirteenth century in no wise refers either to costumes of state or of military service and any illumination of the thirteenth and fourteenth centuries the great period being it seems to me from twelve fifty to thirteen fifty while it shows a peculiar majesty and simplicity in the fall of the robes often worn over the chain armour indicates at the same time an exquisite brilliancy of colour and power of design in the hems and borders as well as in the armorial bearings with which they are charged and while as we have seen a peculiar simplicity is found also in the forms of the architecture corresponding to that of the folds of the robes its colours were constantly increasing in brilliancy and decision corresponding to those of the quartering of the shield and of the embroidery of the mantle whether indeed derived from the quarterings of the knight's shields or from what other source i know not but there is one magnificent attribute of the colouring of the late twelfth the whole thirteenth and the early fourteenth century which i do not find definitely in any previous work nor afterwards in general art though constantly and necessarily in that of great colourists namely the union of one colour with another by reciprocal interference that is to say if a mass of red is to be set beside a mass of blue a piece of the red will be carried into the blue and a piece of the blue carried into the red sometimes in nearly equal proportions as in a shield divided into four quarters of which the uppermost on one side will be of the same colour as the lowermost on the other sometimes in smaller fragments but in the periods above named always definitely and grandly though in a thousand various ways and i call it a magnificent principle for it is an eternal and universal one not in art only but in human life it is the great principle of brotherhood not by equality nor by likeness but by giving and receiving the souls that are unlike and the nations that are unlike 
and the natures that are unlike being bound into one noble whole by each receiving something from and of the other's gifts and the other's glory i have not space to follow out this thought it is of infinite extent and application but i note it for the reader's pursuit because i have long believed and the whole second volume of modern painters was written to prove that in whatever has been made by the deity externally delightful to the human sense of beauty there is some type of god's nature or of god's laws nor are any of his laws in one sense greater than the appointment that the most lovely and perfect unity shall be obtained by the taking of one nature into another i trespass upon too high ground and yet i cannot fully show the reader the extent of this law but by leading him thus far and it is just because it is so vast and so awful a law that it has rule over the smallest things and there is not a vein of colour on the lightest leaf which the spring winds are at this moment unfolding in the fields around us but it is an illustration of an ordainment to which the earth and its creatures owe their continuance and their redemption it is perfectly inconceivable until it has been made a subject of special inquiry how perpetually nature employs this principle in the distribution of her light and shade how by the most extraordinary adaptations apparently accidental but always in exactly the right place she contrives to bring darkness into light and light into darkness and that so sharply and decisively that at the very instant when one object changes from light to dark the thing relieved upon it will change from dark to light and yet so subtly that the eye will not detect the transition till it looks for it the secret of a great part of the grandeur in all the noblest compositions is the doing of this delicately in degree and broadly in mass in colour it may be done much more decisively than in light and shade and according to the simplicity of the work with greater frankness of confession until in purely decorative art as in the illumination glass painting and heraldry of the great periods we find it reduced to segmental accuracy its greatest masters in high art are tintoret veronese and turner together with this great principle of quartering is introduced another also of very high value as far as regards the delight of the eye though not of so profound meaning as soon as colour began to be used in broad and opposed fields it was perceived that the mass of it destroyed its brilliancy and it was tempered by checkering it with some other colour or colours in smaller quantities mingled with minute portions of pure white the two moral principles of which this is the type are those of temperance and purity the one requiring the fullness of the colour to be subdued and the other that it shall be subdued without losing either its own purity or that of the colours with which it is associated end of chapter one part two